so I was born uh, near Boston, and so I always say my home city is is Boston. And I follow all the teams in Boston, uh, so the New England Patriots, the Boston Celtics, and I don't know if you know this, but Boston, sometimes people call it cities of champions. Sometimes people call it title town. Uh, we arguably have the best uh, sports franchises uh, in history in Boston. So you use name one, I can tell you, yeah, we have like the most championships in the NBA along with uh, the Lakers. We also have really that dynasty with the Patriots. Sometimes it's kind of hard these days to be a Patriots fan. But uh, I just remember there's so many moments where I, I, I felt joy because of the success of my teams. Uh, I call them my teams, although they really didn't do anything for me. Uh, I just cheered on. Uh, them winning a championship added nothing to my life other than joy. Um, and I think that's what victory does. Uh, when you win, when there's victory, there, there's so much joy that's involved with it. Even if you're not part of that victory, just by watching that victory, uh, being a witness of that victory, there's so much joy that comes um, to the point where you would see grown men, they would never cry in front of their wives, but they would cry when their sports team wins. Like, that's how much joy, right, uh, a sports team will bring. And it's because victory brings joy. And I think that's one reason why Easter, Resurrection Sunday, is full of joy. Uh, it's because there is a victory and from that victory comes true joy. Jesus says in John chapter 16, this is before Jesus went to the cross, he's sharing some final words with his disciples, and he says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. So he says two things. Number one, life is going to be difficult. There's a hard road ahead of you. You know, you're going to go through some really, really tough, terrible, sorrowful uh, times um, pretty soon, especially as I go to the cross. But I want you to remember that you will have sorrow, but your sorrow will turn into joy. And we see this take place, especially in the victory of Jesus, Jesus in his victory over death, over sin, over Satan, he brings true, true joy into our lives. And that's what John 20 is really all about. It's about the joy that comes in the victory of Jesus. So let's look at this story together. First, we see the setting of today's passage. It says in verse 1, Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. She ran and went to Simon Peter, the other disciple, and one whom Jesus loved, which is most likely John, who's writing this gospel, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So here's the setting. Jesus was on the cross. He died, and then his body was taken down. Uh, people witnessed his body being placed into the tomb. We know that the tomb was closed off with this big stone, and now it's the dirt third day. But interestingly, all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they don't mention this day as the third day. They mention it as the first day of the week. So although it's been three days since she has died on the cross, it's the first day of the week, meaning it is Sunday. So just as a side note, that's why we call Sunday the Lord's Day. 
uh, from here on out, we see in the New Testament that Christians are gathering, especially on the first day of the week. So there's a lot of emphasis that's placed on Sunday because this is the Lord's day, because this is the day that Jesus was risen. And the very fact that Jesus is risen changes everything about our lives. But notice on this particular day, we also see that it's Mary Magdalene who comes to the tomb, the grave of Jesus. Now, we know from other Gospels that most likely Mary wasn't alone, that there were other women who was part of this journey. Um, But I think John isolates Mary Magdalene because he wants us to see something very specific about Mary. And so Mary Magdalene comes when it's still dark, when it's still early, Um, The reason why she's coming to the tomb is because uh, when Jesus died on the cross, she wasn't able to take care of the body of Jesus, put the the ointment and the the, the different treatment that you normally do when someone dies uh, to an honor of that person. And so she wants to show her respect to Jesus. Even though Jesus is dead, she wants to take care of the dead body of Jesus. So she shows up to the tomb early on the third day with other women, most likely here. It just says that it's her. But notice that she sees the tomb open. She sees that the stone is no longer there. And the first thing that she does is she goes to the disciples, Peter and John. Now, at this point, we need to ask a very important question. Why is it that all these women are at the tomb and yet all the disciples are not there? Like Peter, John, all these disciples, they're not present at the the site of the burial. And you might think, well, they probably had no clue what was going to happen. But if you follow the narrative of the Gospels, we are told that from the very beginning, when Jesus started sharing his plan, that he's going to go to the cross, that he's going to be betrayed persecuted, and eventually he's going to die on the hands of all these people. Every time he shares that truth, he says, but on the third day, I'm going to rise again. On the third day, I'm going to rise again. So with the crucifixion, Jesus always shared the resurrection. He said that this is my plan. Like this has been the plan from the very beginning. And yet we see on this particular day, it's been three days, and yet the disciples are not there. I mean, maybe John, Peter, like they could have even said among themselves, maybe we should just even check it out. I mean, I'm not sure if this actually happened, but maybe we should take a peek just to make sure everything is like still there. And yet what we see on this particular day, it is Mary Magdalene and the other woman that show up in the midst of of darkness. And it says in verse 3, as Mary goes and gets Peter and and John, um, the other disciple, they were going towards the tomb and says in verse 4, both of them were running together, but the other apostle outran Peter and reached the tomb first. So I think that's quite funny because you know that John is probably writing this narrative and he wants people to know that, uh, that he's faster than Peter, probably because he's younger than Peter. But it says in verse 5 that he stopped when he looked and saw the linen clothes that were lying in the tomb. So he doesn't go into the tomb himself. He lets Peter go. And so he gets to the tomb first, but it says in verse 6, Simon Peter, who came, he, um, he goes in first, and he went into the tomb. And so John is faster, but Peter is probably bolder. Uh, and so Peter goes into the tomb, and it says he saw the linen clothes lying there, and the face cloth, and which has been placed on Jesus' head, not lying or with the linen clothes, but folded up in place by itself. So the first thing that we see in today's passage is this. Peter is looking. He's seeing. Um, It tells us that our faith 
begins with reason. Faith in Jesus Christ must be reasonable. That's the first thing I want you to know. Uh, a lot of people, when they think of the Christian faith, they feel like, well, they just believe in something that's out there, something that's up in the air. Um, science is based on facts, uh, and then you have religion that's based on faith. And so they would say that religion, they have no facts. It's not really logical or reasonable or rational. They would say that it's just something that people believe because they're weak. But notice that what the text is communicating to us today is there is reason and there is rationale that is involved in the process of believing. Because Peter and John, they weren't only skeptical about the resurrection, they had no clue about the resurrection at this point. They didn't believe in the resurrection. None of the Jews nor the Romans believed in a resurrection. Some Jewish people believed in the resurrection, but not in a bodily resurrection immediately. But they believed that on the day of judgment that there would be a resurrection. No one actually anticipated the resurrection of Jesus. But we see that Peter, he saw all of these different things. The word saw there is not just a word that is used to describe, hey, I'm, I'm seeing these things, but it's looking with intent. Uh, it's looking to investigate. And so Peter is investigating the scene of, of the burial site. And he sees that something is off. That Jesus, number one, his body is no longer there. But the fact that everything is nicely folded up, that's quite surprising. Because we know that people in their 30s, a, a single man will never fold his clothes in such a way. right? But everything is folded up. Everything is nicely placed. I personally had an experience where... Um, there were robbers who came into my house when I was young. And I don't know if you experienced this. Like, they don't live, leave a pretty scene for you. Um, the, everything is, like, thrown all over the place. Things are messy. Uh, that's what happens when people come to rob you. Uh, but in this particular case, everything was nicely folded, cleaned up. And so you kind of understand that this is probably not a case of robbery, which was quite common in the ancient world because they kept valuable things with the corpse uh, when they would bury someone. Uh, but in this particular case, it tells you that something supernatural has happened, that Jesus is no ordinary man, that he's no longer there. Something has happened with his life. It's the resurrection. All the evidence are pointing to the fact that Jesus is risen. So it's quite reasonable at this point for the disciples to believe that Jesus is no longer dead, but he is alive. So it says in verse 8, then the other disciples who had reached another disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and then it says he believed so it's when john sees all the evidence the the empty tomb the rolled stone and and the fold up linen when he sees all that he begins to believe it's it's a word of faith the word believe is is the verb for the word faith and so he's believing that jesus is is risen but notice also in verse 9 that his belief is not complete because it says, Yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. So they, they had somewhat of an understanding that Jesus is no longer here in the grave, but they didn't get the full picture. They didn't connect the dots. They didn't understand what Christ was trying to do through his resurrection. And so they go back home. Uh, and they lock the doors. And we're gonna, we see later on what happens with them, that Jesus appears to them again, but they're behind closed doors. So we see that faith is reasonable. The Christian faith is not simply a blind faith, but there are tangible facts. 
things that you can examine and believe. I think a great book is called The Case of, of Christ, where you have a journalist who was trying to disprove um, the resurrection of Jesus. They're trying to disprove um, the reliability of the Bible. And what that journalist found out as the more and more he was investigating the Bible, investigating the historical facts of Jesus, he became a believer, and he ended up writing a book, The Case for Christ. Because what he realized was that he thought reason could destroy the Christian faith. When he actually pursued reason, he realized that it's actually quite reasonable to believe that Jesus, his resurrection, actually took place in history. But also know that reason is not everything to the faith. That just because you have reason doesn't mean you have complete faith. You might understand a lot of things. But just because you know a lot of things doesn't mean you are able to fully believe. Because notice, although they had good, a good reason to believe, they're still behind closed doors, the disciples. They're still worried and afraid of the Jewish leaders. There's still a lot of questions that are existing in their hearts and in their minds. And this is where we turn to the one woman that is mentioned, Mary Magdalene. Who is Mary? Um, she's the one who, who stays behind. She's the one when all the disciples left, um, even Peter and John, they went back home. But we read in, in verse 11 that, that she stayed there. So who is Mary Magdalene? There's different theories about her. Uh, some people, based on her last name, would say that she was a prostitute because uh, Magdalene is a city that was known to be a, a party town. And, and so a lot of people believe that it was, I don't know, like kind of Cancun or, or, or in New Orleans, somewhere that we know that, okay, people go to have a great time. Uh, that's the reputation that Magdalene has. So when she was known as Mary Magdalene, people thought, well, she loves to party. Uh, but there's no biblical evidence, actually, uh, in the Bible about that, um, that, that she was a prostitute or that was her life. In fact, when you re- look at the movie Passion of the Christ, um, it's portrayed that she is the woman who was caught in the midst of adultery, that Jesus saved um, uh, right before she was about to get stoned. And that has, again, no biblical evidence whatsoever. Um, I think uh, Mel Gibson just decided to put that into play because they felt like prostitute, yeah, Mary Magdalene must be that woman. Uh, So there's no biblical basis for that. Some people believe, uh, because of the Da Vinci Code, that Mary Magdalene was the secret lover of Jesus. Like they had this kind of relationship. And this is a true thing. Like a lot of people believe this that they have this theory that the reason why you see Mary Magdalene in tears to the last moment is because she romantically loved Jesus and they had a thing. And they, some people believe that they had a secret baby as well. Again, um, no basis in the Bible. The Bible doesn't mention anything about those things. Um, and so I just want you to be aware, like, you know, know what the Bible says. We don't have much information of Mary Magdalene, in fact. If you just look up her name and try to search where she appears in the Bible. There's only a few places that she would appear. She appears in all four resurrection accounts. Uh, that's quite interesting. But I think the key passage to understand who she was is in Luke 8. It says in Luke 8 verse 2 that there's some people who are following Jesus. And especially among these people, there are the 12, but some women who have been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, meaning they were sick. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. And so Mary, one thing that we know for sure, according to the Bible, is that she was demon-possessed, that she was in bondage to these wicked spirits, that she was having a spiritual condition. It's not just one demon that's associated with her. Seven demons are, are associated with her. 
And what the Bible says is that, that those demons have gone out. So the first thing that we know about Mary Magdalene is that she's, she, she was a broken person, that she was a social outcast, that she was demon-possessed. Imagine someone who's demon-possessed. They're probably saying strange things, acting in a strange way. And so you can understand how people would kind of keep their distance from this person. Um, some people might have even viewed this person as someone who's wicked, sinful, cursed. None of the, nothing in the Bible says that. But one thing that we do know for sure is she did not live a normal life. That her life was so broken. She was living in isolation. No one really wanted to talk to her, be part of her life. And yet, Jesus appears in her broken life and puts together the broken pieces and restores her life. We see that the demons are gone, and she is faithfully following Jesus in Luke 8. As the 12 are following Jesus, there are other women that are mentioned who are following Jesus. That's, another, that's the proof, by the way, that shows you that Jesus is not sexist. Uh, a lot of people think, well, Jesus is always prioritizing men. Uh, that he's always just taking care of men. No, you see that there are women who were following Jesus right with the 12. And, and these women really did remarkable things in history. You think about the women who anointed Jesus' feet, that, that the Bible says her story is going to be made known forever because of that. Like you see some great men and women who are following Jesus in the Bible, and Mary Magdalene was, was one of them. She was healed from Jesus. Her condition was gone, and her life was in a way, to some degree, restored. So she became a follower of Jesus. She was following Jesus so tightly to the point that she followed Jesus throughout his public journey. He followed Jesus all the way to the cross. When the 12 disciples all ran away, only John uh, stayed at the crucifixion site, you also see Mary Magdalene's name mentioned at the crucifixion, that she's there. She's a witness of the crucifixion. She sees all that's going on. She also sees... Jesus died on the cross, and, and the soldiers bringing down the bo- dead body of Jesus. Um, so not only does she see Jesus on the cross, but she, Jesus dead, literally dead. Um, and, and there's only the body that's remaining. And so she was someone who really followed Jesus. And I think the reason why she did that is because Jesus was everything to her. The only thing that restored her life was Jesus. Like all the peace that she found in her life, all the comfort that she found in her life, all the joy that she found in her life, the security that she had in her life, she had nothing of that before she met Jesus. No one wanted to be with her. Her life was a mess. Uh, It was broken. And yet when Jesus came into the picture, everything was restored. So you can imagine how she would love Jesus for all that he has done. Her life is not the same. Like, Jesus was everything to Mary, which is why in today's passage, she's still weeping. When the disciples are are gone and the disciples leave, in verse 11 it says, But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stood to look into the tomb. So Mary, she is a broken person. She is really lost for words. She's crying her heart is, is broken because the one that she loves so much, the one that she relied on so much is gone. At least that's what she thinks. Um, I think this happens in our lives when you, um, a lot of times things go out of control, that we place our trust, our comfort, our peace, maybe in a person or in a situation. There are certain things that we hold on to that we feel like, you know, these are the things that make our lives complete. And life gets, gets really difficult when things get really shaky when those things are taken away. 
when your loved one is taken away, when your health is taken away, when the opportunity that you feel like you deserve is taken away. Those, in those moments, our hearts are broken, our hearts are shattered. It feels like it's not just something that's taken away. Your whole life is ripped out uh, of, uh, and taken away from you. Your whole, whole heart, in a way, is ripped out and taken away from you. You feel devastated. You feel broken when you see the, the, the crisis that takes place in your life. And if you never experienced that before, um, I'll, I'll give you a heads up. It's coming. Uh, life is, is broken and, and messy and full of sin that we know that until the Lord returns that we, would, we are going to face the hardships of life. And the reason why I think it's important for you to understand the nature of life in such a way, I think the reason why today's passage, although you might not be in a state of brokenness in such a way, I think the reason why it's so important for you to understand this right now is because when that moment comes, when you're hit with that crisis, you're not going to be able to think straight. Your emotions are going to get the best of you. You're not going to be able to logically come to a conclusion that this is what I need to do uh, because that's what we see in Mary's life right now. She is clueless. She, she is not thinking straight. She's not seeing things straight. Like she is so devastated at this point because she sees all these, these things, but she still believes that Jesus is dead. Look at verse 12. It says this, And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one, of, one on the head and one on the feet. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, They have taken away my Lord. And I do not know where they have laid him. Now, this is quite remarkable because you don't see many people meet an angel in the Bible. A lot of times when they meet an angel, it's just one. And even when they meet one angel, they're like, I'm going to die. Like, I'm so terrified. Like, that's the normal reaction that you would get when you meet a messenger, which is what the word means in in Greek. And galeon means messenger. Uh, When you meet a messenger of God, an angel. And Mary... She meets not just one, but two angels. The angels speak to her. The last time we've seen two angels in such a way is probably at the Ark of the Covenant, where in the Holy of Holies, you have this box called the Ark of the Covenant that contains uh, probably the Ten Commandments, the staff of Aaron, and uh, a bull of manna, and it's a symbol of God's presence. And on top, you have the mercy seat, and you have two angels protecting it, the figures protecting it. So it's a big deal that physically, in reality, you are meeting two angels. And what is her response? When the angels say, woman, why are you weeping? Well, they have taken away my Lord. I do not know where they lay down. Like, she, she's not understanding the weight of this moment. She's just carrying on a casual conversation. Like, she doesn't recognize what's going on right now to the point in verse 14. This time, it's not two angels. It's Jesus that shows up. She turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Now, some people believe that Jesus somehow changed his form in his resurrected form, and therefore, like, it was too glorious for Mary to recognize. Uh, some people believe that Mary's eyes were so full of tears that she didn't recognize Jesus. But even notice, like, Jesus speaks to her. It says in verse 15, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And, and Mary, even at this point, supposes that this person is a gardener. She doesn't recognize that it's Jesus. It's probably someone who's taking care of the garden. And so she asks, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. So she's having a conversation with Jesus, and yet she doesn't recognize that it's Jesus. Why? 
Because when you are so broken in your life, you can't think straight. Even though the evidence are, are lining up, because your, your logic, your rationale is, is distorted because of the emotions and the brokenness, the sorrow that, that overtakes your heart, you can't think straight. And I think that's why it's important that you prepare yourself for those moments right now. Because if you try to find the answer when life hits you hard, you're going to really feel the effects. But it's almost like a savings account. If you have a savings account, you're prepared for life's crisis, right? You're expecting that something's going to happen in your life. And when things are really rough, you have to rely on your savings account, your retirement plan, all those things. What, what my advice is, especially if you never had this type of sorrow or brokenness in your life, just know that it's coming and it's better to be prepared for it than be surprised by it. Because at that moment, you're going to need all the word of God that you can get. Um, and you're not going to be able to do that unless you have things saved up in your heart. But back to the, today's text. Um, so it says that Mary did not recognize Jesus because she was so broken. She wasn't thinking straight. All the evidence are pointing to the fact that Jesus is risen. Just think about Mary, what she could have thought logically if she wasn't so broken. First of all, she too was with Jesus when Jesus was mentioning time after time, that I'm going to rise again, right? She knew that Jesus was going to go to the cross. She knew that Jesus was going to rise again on the third day. She had that information that the 12 had. She witnessed the big stone be removed from the tomb. She saw that. She even goes into the tomb and sees exactly what Peter and John has saw. The fold-up clothes, the, the empty tomb, like everything she sees. All these evidence, these information she should be able to put together and come to a conclusion that something miraculous had happened. Like something strange is taking place. It's not that Jesus is dead. Jesus is probably alive at this point. That's right. That's exactly what he said. Notice that she could have put together the evidence and yet we see that she's unable to do that in her brokenness. But the good news is this. In the midst of her brokenness, when she's not thinking straight, Jesus calls her name says in verse 16, Jesus said to her, Mary. And when she hears her name being called by Jesus, it says in Aramaic, Rebunai, which means teacher. And she finally realizes that this is the one that she followed all along. That this is Jesus. That this is the one that she's been waiting for. So the second thing about faith that we see in today's text is this. Faith, yes, it has to be rational and reasonable, but faith has to be personal. Just knowing stuff about the Bible, I mean, that's good. It's a good foundation. But at some point, the stories that you read in God's word have to become your story. You have to see yourself in God's greater story. You have to realize that the resurrection was not just a historical event, but it was an event that took place because you were dead in your trespasses and sin, and God was sending his one and only son, Jesus, to die on the cross to make a way for you and for me. At some point, your reason has to come down from your head to your heart, and it has to become personal. Our faith must be personal. That's exactly what happening, what's happening with Mary. She knew all these things, and yet when she finally encounters Jesus in a personal way, when Jesus calls Mary her name, that's when she says, Rabbi, it's you. And I love how Jesus responds, by the way. In verse 17, Jesus said to her, do not cling to me. For I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your 
Father to my God and your God. I think that's so interesting. I mean, Mary finally gets it. And, and Jesus probably wanted Mary to get this. But the first word that Jesus says to Mary is, hey, don't, don't cling to me. This is when you know that they weren't really in a romantic, loving relationship, right? Because if you found your lover in such a way, you'd be hugging, you'd be kissing and all that. No, it's like Jesus is like, hey, keep your distance. You've been crying for days at this point. You're, you're like stuff are coming down from all, all sorts of places. You're, you're, your clothes are probably not. No, that's not what he's saying. He's not avoiding Mary because he thinks Mary is filthy and Mary is dirty or Mary, Mary's unworthy to be embraced. I don't think that's the case. I think Jesus is trying to make a point. Because up to this point, Mary, ever since Jesus freed her uh, from her condition, she's been clinging on to Jesus. Ever since. Everywhere Jesus would go, Mary has been clinging on to Jesus. And at this point, Jesus is saying, hey, Mary, you've done a lot of clinging. Now it's time for you to go. Not just to go and live your life, but to go. Share this news. Share this good news that I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and, and your God. There will be a day when I go up, and I'm no longer going to be here with you physically. But just know that even at that time, you can still live a life that's faithful and honoring to God. How? Not just by clinging on to me, but making my name known among the nations. You be a witness. And it says in verse 18, Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. It's quite ironic because the disciples are also called the apostles, which means the people who are sent to carry on a message. But Mary Magdalene, out of all people, this woman that we don't know much about, we just know that she was a broken person who was isolated in society, had a lot of issues, messy life, and yet God uses this woman, transforms this woman so that she can bring the good news to the disciples who are going to create history, who are going to go on and plant churches, who are going to go on and die for Jesus. It all begins with Mary Magdalene. Why? It's not because she did anything uh, that was worthy of this. It's purely by God's grace. When Jesus calls her name, she realizes all the things that she knew. It comes into place. Pieces get put together. She realizes that now Jesus is risen, and her life is no longer about just clinging on to Jesus, but it's not now about making Jesus known. So the third thing that we see about our faith is this. Our faith drives us to live for Jesus. Our faith drives us to live for Jesus. Yes, your faith has to be reasonable. Yes, your faith has to be personal. But there are so many Christians who are just clinging on to Jesus, who just want Jesus for their own sake, for their own benefit, for their own comfort. Mary could have lived in such a way. Mary could have just said, now that I'm free from all these evil spirits, I'm just going to go on and enjoy my life. I've been in such, so much pain and sorrow up to this point. Let me just live a little bit. And yet what she does as she loves Jesus to the end, as she follows Jesus, Jesus is able to restore her heart, open her eyes to see that not only is there good news for you, Mary, but there's a mission that I give you. One pastor says it like this, for those who believe in the good news, the gospel message also has to understand that you have a gospel mission. Those who are given the gospel message have received also the gospel mission. The reason why you have this good news in your hands today, if you are a believer, a follower of Jesus Christ, if you have received the incredible gift of salvation through faith, by grace, that means that 
you no longer just cling on to Jesus, but you live for his glory. That you go and share the good news with others. It's not meant to stay within. It's meant to go. And that's how really the early church begins. With one life that's been transformed by God's grace. And so on this Resurrection Sunday, I can lay out all the facts, all the historical evidences that the resurrection is absolutely true. That there's, there's, it's, it's actually hard to deny the resurrection. I can do that. Um, but I also know that it's not just based on reason. Reason is important, but there's something more to faith than reason. That the Spirit has to convict you personally that this is actually your Lord and Savior. That he is your teacher. That he has risen, defeated the death and grave. And that he reigns today over your lives. And he's inviting you to live a life that's honoring and pleasing to him. And so that's the invitation that God is giving us today, that God saves us so that we can serve him. I'll end with this in 1 Corinthians 15. Another guy who has been radically transformed by the gospel is a guy named Paul. And he writes this in his letter to the Corinthian church. For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received. So Paul received so many things from the Lord, but he says, if I can just share one thing with you that is first importance, that's the most important thing that I've received from the Lord, it's this, that Christ died for our sins in in accordance with scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with scripture, and he appeared to Cephas, Peter, then the 12, and he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. The resurrection is real. It is true. It is trustworthy. You have all these evidence, and also it's very personal because the last of all, the one that he appeared to is me. And he says, for I was the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted God, the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preached and you believed. So what Paul says is this. The reason why I work so hard, I give my life to plant all these churches, to share the gospel everywhere I go, is because I received this incredible grace in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I know who I was. I was a sinner in need of a Savior. And Jesus, for some, some crazy reason, appeared in my life, saved me from my spiritual darkness and my condition. And therefore, I preach what I believe I preach to those around me. I think God is inviting us to do the same. Always remember that if we believe in the gospel message, we have a gospel mission. And we can carry out this mission because it's reasonable, it's personal, and God empowers us to be a faithful witness for his glory. So let's celebrate Resurrection Sunday as God tells us to do so. Amen?